Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're here re-entering the Xander Zone for the final time, potentially, to give you another Spy Master interview. You may remember we spoke to the creator of X, Mr. Rich Wilkes, a couple of months back when we spoke about the first film. But today we are joined by a very special guest. That's right. We're talking to Scott Frazier, who... He was in charge of taking the baton and running with the return of Xander Cage, which was, you know, something of a notable event when it happened on the big screen because it had been so many years in between installments, what with the State of the Union falling in the middle. So it's an interesting assignment to have to try to breathe new life into a franchise that many thought dead. Yeah, there was a hell of a lot of buzz when this film came out. I know it didn't do particularly well, but there was a lot of people saying, hey, Xander Cage is back. And this is one of the the table of people, which we'll learn in the interview, people that shepherded it back onto the big screen. So I think without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And joining us now on Spy Hard's podcast, the writer of Triple X3, The Return of Xander Cage, it is Scott Frazier. Hello, Scott. Hello. How's it going? Now, it's doing well. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's you know we've had we have rich works on for the first triple x and you're here to, to give us the bookend or maybe not the bookend there might be a fourth one at some point but uh, it'd be great to talk about the the third entry and uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts about the film but how would we like to start this no no they're, they're good thoughts don't worry okay um, how we'd like to start our chats is just getting to know you a little bit so tell us how you got into screenwriting what what made you want to get into it um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a story that goes back a little ways. I'd always wanted to be a writer. Uh, it was just something that I was drawn to, you know, I had, you know, writing short stories when I was a kid and stuff like that. Um, right out of high school, I got a job working at a video game company, uh, as a, as a tester, basically, it's kind of mm-hmm. like the entry level position for the video game industry, uh, at a company called THQ. We made like all of the Nickelodeon games and the Disney games and the Pixar games and UFC and wrestling and everything like that. Uh, and it was just kind of like, I'd never thought about writing as a career. And then I was at that job for almost 10 years, kind of working my way up through the company, uh, and was just, you know, very unfulfilled and it wasn't, you know, it was video games, but it was still kind of like, it's a nine to five job. Uh, Mm And so right around the time that the recession happened and like, you know, there were layoffs and everything like that. I was like, I had just asked my girlfriend to marry me. uh, And I, and I looked around and I realized like, this is as cheap as my life is ever going to be like right now. Like this is the time where like, if I'm going to take a chance, like this is where I don't have a mortgage and I don't have kids and I don't have any of that shit that, you know, relies on me making money. Uh, so I went to my boss and I was like, you know, if I, I, I want to try my hand at screenwriting. I want to try and get into it and see if I can make a career out of it. Uh, so if you want to lay somebody off, lay me off. I'll take the severance. I'll take like all of my sick days and everything. And basically where I was is I, I had enough money from that to not have to work for a year. And so that year I wrote two scripts uh, and it, it got about to the point where I, you know, my fiance and I were looking at each other and I was like, I guess I got to go back and get another job. Uh, and then I got my manager, my literary manager, like right around that time. And I was like, okay, well maybe we can like squeak it out for like another three or four months or something like that. And then I got my agent, uh, and I was like, okay, maybe I got to keep going and, you know, do, do a little bit more, a little bit more. Uh, and then I optioned my first script and it just kind of steamrolled from there. 
And was that first script the number station? Yeah, so that that first year I wrote two movies. Uh, the first one was called The Number Station, uh, which we optioned almost right away after I got my after my manager started representing me. Uh, and then another script called Embassy, which I optioned around the same time, but never ended up getting made. Okay, so I know I'm curious because we're going to talk about Triple X, which is obviously a spy film, and we yeah. cover spy films on this podcast. But the number station applies as well. And just your experience of you know as a first film, what sort of lessons you learned from it that you would carry forward? Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> I didn't. I, I honestly I didn't know anything when I when I wrote that script, uh, and somehow it got made into a movie. Uh, but it, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I. I go back and I read that script and it just feels like it was written by a completely different person at this point. Um, it, it feels that way kind of every time I write a script, I, I go back to the one that was that came before it and I was like, I don't remember being this person that wrote this <laughs> script. So I, I don't know, that's, a, that's an odd thing. I, I just try and, the lesson that I take from everything that I write is usually m like, what do I, what's the movie that I wanna watch tomorrow night and try and write that movie. That, that's really all, all I can do. Uh, chasing trends and everything like that just never seems to work out for me. Yeah, when you were you know, just getting your start then with screenwriting, and you said even as a kid you were writing stories, was there any particular screenwriter or type of story you were drawn towards, something you would style yourself with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always liked, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, like I was a big, you know, uh, Back to the Future fan and Star Wars and, uh, you know, Jurassic Park and, uh, you know, Jurassic Park is like the one seeing that movie in a theater and like my dad didn't tell me what we were seeing. And like, he just dragged me to the movie theater and I had no idea that this movie existed. I had no idea that there were dinosaurs in it. I didn't know anything about it. And like, to, to sit down in a movie theater and have that movie play when you know next to nothing uh, was kind of like this, like, I don't know, changing point for me. Uh, and I've just always been interested in like action adventure, uh, thrillers, stuff like that. Uh, never been really a comedy guy, but yeah, that's th those are the kind of stories that I'm drawn to. Uh, and, you know, I think that you can tell from a lot of the movies that I've written, spies or for whatever reason, uh, uh you know interesting to me well yeah you wrote the movie collide as well but w what was the one that sort of helped you get the job on triple x uh so i wrote i wrote a script on spec which means i i wrote it uh on my own uh without anybody paying paying me for it ahead of time uh called berliner uh which uh is a spy movie that takes place in the 60s around when the uh the berlin wall goes up mm -hmm. uh and i wrote that and uh sold it to universal uh, uh 2000 i want to say 14 maybe 2013 2014 uh and it, it got on the blacklist uh which is like a you know a screenwriting like best of in the year and everything like that uh but the guy that i sold it to at universal uh was the president of production uh, a guy named jeff kirschenbaum who after you know i sold him that script and then we did a couple other projects together and then he left to go join joe roth as a producer uh and like three days after he joined joe roth as a producer he called me up and asked me if i was interested in working on triple x so he well, kind of went, yeah, he went from, he went from film executive to producer and that's how I, that's how I ended up on it. 
I guess that leads us into Triple X then. So you've got the call. Had you seen the first two films at that point? Yeah, uh, I actually, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember if I saw it opening night or it was definitely opening weekend. I saw the first Triple X opening weekend. Uh, I was just a big Vin Diesel fan and I had a group of friends and we all went and saw it. Uh, The second one, I don't think I went and saw in the theater, but I had seen it, you know, on DVD or that sort of thing. So yeah, I I was familiar with it and I, I knew what the, what the franchise was all about. So when you're meeting with Revolution about writing Triple X 3, what sort of directives are they giving you? Like, what are they looking for at this point? Because it's many years since even Triple X 2. Yeah, so it was really more, uh, uh, it it was basically from my outside understanding of what happened, uh, there there was money sitting in a bank account to go make the movie. They knew that Vin Diesel was available from January to April uh, before he had to go off and do the next Fast and Furious movie. I don't remember which one it was, but he had had a commitment to go make Fast and Furious in April. Uh, I was called in September. So, you know, three months, four months before that. And, And basically the instruction was, we have the money sitting in a bank account. We have four months to go shoot this movie. And we don't have a script. Uh, so let's write a script and get this thing off the ground so that we can start shooting January 1st, basically. So no pressure. Uh, it was, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I tend to write fast, but that was still, it was definitely like a very bizarre situation and not at all like the way 95% of movies happen in this business. It's usually a very long, slow slog uphill to get something made. And this was just kind of like, we didn't even really have time to second guess anything or, or, you know, it was just, we're, we're making this movie in January. Let's, let's do it. So like when you're going through the process of handing in drafts, like did it come together very quickly, just creatively? Uh, Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to think of, it it was basically, like I said, uh, uh, Jeff Kirschenbaum, who goes by Kirsch is one of the best guys in town. he called me up and asked me if I was interested. I said, yes, I think a day later or two days later, I was sitting in his office with him, uh, DJ Caruso, the director and Vin. Uh, and it was just kind of like a round table of like, here's the ideas, like, here's, here's what, you know, here's what we envision this movie to be. Um, and then the process after that was again, very different from, from, you know, what you normally see. Uh, normally it's like I, I would come up with a pitch and everybody would kind of give thumbs up on a pitch or an outline or something like that. And then I'd disappear for three months, uh, and then turn a script in on this. It was, we, we kind of all sat together and it was, it was literally like, we'd talk about, here's what the first scene is, right? Like we kind of knew the broad strokes of the movie, but it was more about like, okay, what's our first scene? Okay, great. And then I'd sit there and I'd write it or I'd go home and I'd write it for two hours and then come back the next morning and we'd have the scene. Um, And then, and so it was just kind of like organically built that every day it was kind of like, okay, what's next, what's next, what's next. Um, And then, you know, sometimes there would be a couple days off where I'd go off and write, you know, 40 pages of the script and then come back, you know, on Monday and, and, and we, you know, go back to the beginning and start working on it again. So it was a very collaborative kind of organic process of, of building it. 
So when you got to that table, and it sounds like the three of them are already sat there, you're joining them as, as the screenwriter as the fourth person. What ideas did they already have about what they wanted to see from the story? Because you know, this is Vin Diesel coming back to a character that he helped bring to life. He obviously didn't come back for the sequel, so I, I assume he had some ideas. Yeah, it was it was really about being true to the character. Uh, and I think that one of the things uh, that that we, you know, we really wanted to point out was that the, uh, you know, the kind of extreme sports tone of 2002 is completely different than the extreme sports tone of when we were making it 2015 or 2016, mm -hmm. where in 2002, it was very much, you know, outsider kind of a middle finger raised to the establishment kind of a thing. But by the time that we were making it, Sean White was a is a household name, right? Of everybody knows who Sean White is. Everybody knows who Tony Hawk is. He has fucking eight video games named after him. Like it wasn't it wasn't revolutionary to kind of be an extreme sports person or athlete in 2016. Um, so we kind of needed to find like what what was Xander Cage all about, and you know also opening. So that was the first directive, and then the second one was also opening it up to be a much more international. Uh, kind of feel and you know uh, not just in in the locations that we went to but like the cast as well and and making it you know more of a of a oceans 11 type you know team effort rather than just a, a singular guy so I would guess you went back and watched the original film during yes. the process yeah. yeah was there any interesting notes you took because you know you talk about the evolution of the sports and you know the stunts to the modern day but just in terms of like going back to the film was there anything that you noted that was interesting for you to continue to evolve or that jumped out as something worth exploring hmm it's a good question um i think to me it was it was about the stunts uh again like that movie opens and he drives a car off of a bridge uh and you know jumps out with a parachute on um and when we had when i started writing it i can't remember i think two years before felix Baumgartner jumped out of a hot air balloon in space so it was it that was kind of like the where we were at of like not just like the tone of extreme sports but like the kinds of things that would make people go like oh i haven't seen that before like legitimately like i can't just go and see this on YouTube or ESPN or something like that. Um, so I think that, that that was really what I took from the first movie was that the stuff that was kind of awe-inspiring when you saw it in 2002, it was, we needed to kind of turn it up a little bit to get, get attention, I guess. Right, and I would love to know too, in terms of the stunts, and I think the stunt sequences in the movie are really effective, Yeah, but like, what is, because I feel like when you're writing triple X action sequences, it's very hard to walk the line between something that's like really fun and the audience is, you know, pumping their fists for it versus something that falls into almost like parody or absurdity. And I sure. think this movie succeeds, but I'm just really interested from a creative standpoint of when you're coming up with like a crazy stunt, how, at what point are you going, I might be going too far or will this work? Yeah, I, I tend to try and I, this is a cheap answer. I, I tend to like, go from the gut on that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I think that one of the things I love most about movies is that every movie kind of has its own like tone and feel to it. 
and what feels completely outrageous and wrong in uh, collateral actually feel like if you did something zany in that movie, for example, uh, that wouldn't feel right, but then you could put it into John Wick and it feels totally fine and organic. Um, so I think that with Triple X, I mean, just, you know, the title alone, I think you're, it was never a question of like, what's too far. I think that it was a question of, uh, if I, I'm, I'm trying to like put myself back in the headspace. It was more about the question of like, if I watch this on screen, am I going to like, I want people to laugh. Like I want that little ex, that little like chuckle of like, oh, this is, this is fun. But like, it can't be the laugh of, oh, this is silly. Like I'm right. laughing. We all want to be laughing together. Like I don't want people laughing at us. So it was, it was honestly just a lot of gut feeling. I think I wrote the the opening that that reintroduces Xander. I think we had five or six different versions of that opening. Uh, where in the movie now he uh, he dirt skis uh, through a jungle and then mm -hmm. hops on board a uh, a long board that's going fifty miles an hour downhill, like in and out of traffic, to get to a village on time to make it so that they can watch the World Cup. Uh, I. I think that we had five or six versions of that opening, that introduction to him that had nothing to do with any of that. I think there was one where he like punched a shark, like he was swimming in the ocean and a shark <laughs> came up and he punched a shark. And so I think that like, even as we wrote this, uh, I, I actually remember DJ, uh, DJ Crusoe, the director texted me after I sent him that scene and he was like, no, this one's too far. And, and I was like, yeah, I, I know, I know. Um, so I think that it was just, we kind of just relied on our own kind of internal gauge and, uh, for better or worse, that's what ended up on screen. It's, it's awesome. funny because a lot of films, you, you think of James Bond, you think of Moonraker is the one I go to. Yeah. Uh, James Bond and, and Jaws plummeting out of an airplane and Jaws lands into a circus tent and he's fine for the rest of the film. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty ludicrous, but no one's sitting there going, <laughs> No one's sitting there going, how is he standing? They just go, okay, that was funny. Let's move on to the next scene. And it doesn't, they, no one holds it really against the film. It was just a fun moment. And yeah. I think this film, like Cam says, really does sort of walk that line very well. So, so kudos to you for doing that. Um, one question I had, and this is still about the sort of conception process. Yeah. Um, this is, I don't know if you necessarily concern this as, as, I'll use canon. I don't like using the word, but in terms of the story. Yeah. Um, Triple X is killed in Triple X 2. Yes. Well, he's off, killed yeah. twice. Off, off, off camera. Off he's camera. Well, he's killed once off camera. And then he, in the DVD, they filmed an extra scene where they blew him up. So that one I did not consider canon. That one I, mm. I did not take to, to be true. That, that one seemed a little spiteful, I have to say. But uh, yeah. we'll, we'll move yeah. on from that. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> a little gratuitous, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah, so it's that's... like the, the piece of skin with his tattoo like floats down. The... <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually seen it. It's it's on YouTube. It, it is definitely definitely a blast. It actually has one of the cast members from Triple X Two in it as well to try and sell it. Yeah, Stra strange scene. They, and they used uh, Ben Diesel's stunt double as uh, as Vin. Yes. Yeah, but lovely stuff. But, but yeah, I I treated the I I treated what was in the movie as as canon basically, mm -hmm. which was they said that he died, and I'm kind of like, well, anybody can say that you died, <laughs> like, and, and just kind of went from there. Like I didn't really, yeah. I, I tried not to worry about that. 
Well, if we're talking about the established characters that we do have, in terms of the ones returning in this film, we have Triple X and we have uh, Samuel Jackson's character as well. Yeah. Augustus. And how is it for, how do you find it easy? Do you find it difficult writing characters that already have an established background and then having to flesh that out? Or, you know, how, do you, how do you deal with that? You know, uh, I think that, I, I think that, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is, is amazing, you know, and he can kind of, he can kind of put music to anybody's bad lyrics at this point. Uh, so like for his character, we went through a number of versions of his character uh, where he was kind of in the movie the entire time. Mm -hmm. uh, and at a certain point, it just didn't feel right. It felt like we were just kind of rehashing the first movie over and over again. Um, so, so that's kind of what led to uh, let's blow him up in the first scene. Um, but in terms of like redoing the characters, I, I honestly, I tried not to worry too much about it. I think that those guys kind of knew who the characters were. Vin, especially, I mean, he's been, he's been thinking about Xander for 17 years at this point. Um, uh, they knew who the characters were. I, I tried not to like spend too much time thinking about it because, you know, again, it had been 15 years. I, I don't think that uh, there was, uh, I don't know if there was any benefit in that, I guess is, mm -hmm. is the, is the point. Spinning off from that, you said, you know, Vin had been thinking about this character and he was signed on for a very long time to do the sequel and then things happened. And and, and then that, yeah, we ended up with uh, Ice Cube. That's yeah. fine. But I, did you get a sense from him that he had been passionate about doing this character for a very long time and it just took a while for the, you know, the, the, things to collide and things to happen yeah it, i mean yes the I, I i had a lot of conversations with him about like not like necessarily like what the character was because i think that you know nobody knows the character better than then but more about like what the character meant to him but also the audience and people that were wanting to see the character come back uh mm -hmm. that that you know loved the character or found the character a decade after the first movie came out um, I think the DVD still sells crazy good or, you know, the streams still, still do extremely well. Um, so I, I think for him, it was about kind of like being true to that promise that he had made that like eventually that character would come back and, and we'd get to, you know, see him, see him in another rodeo, I guess. So when you're making a return of Xander Cage and you're looking at the first film and then writing a new one, how tough is it to walk the line between sort of doing callbacks and sort of references to the original versus invention on your own and i think this movie actually does do a really good balance of lines we recognize with new stuff but is it difficult going through the script process is there almost nervousness um even you know from other people about we need to touch more on the first film you know that was never that was never a thing uh i think we did like we did the coat you know i i think the coat was like a a a big thing uh but then we kind of you know call him out on the coat uh i think uh uh you know we we make a joke at the coat's expense uh and then the you know the the things i do for the country kind of a kind of a moment where in the first movie you know he he has to bed one woman and in triple x3 he has to bed an entire room full of women um i to it was it was more about like finding those things that people remember from the movie and kind of like as opposed to just like saying like saying the line again you know finding those moments and and ways that we could again make them make them bigger for 15 years down the road right 
Well, you you mentioned the uh, the shark earlier, which I would really like to see that scene, but it's it's lost the it's time. On, it, by the sound it, of it. It's on it's on my computer somewhere for sure. Oh, don't! I, I might have to start an email campaign and get you to release <laughs> yeah. it or something. I don't know. That that I feel like that needs to be read by someone or someone needs to make some visual effects for that. But my question: yeah. so you were at this process of writing the script. It's, it seems like a very collaborative process with DJ Caruso, Vin Diesel, and that that's probably why we ended up with such a good film. But were there moments and scenes and and maybe just a whole plot? Was it different at certain points during the evolution? Was there was it very different? You said there was a minute where Augustus Gibbons was in the whole film. What are some of the maybe the the, the uh, strings of plot we never followed? Uh, yeah. Um, let me think. Definitely, Augustus being in the whole movie was that was that was we, we got pretty far down the road with that, um, and he was eventually replaced with uh, oh, oh, gosh, Tony I'm, Collette. Tony, Tony Collette. Collette. Yeah, exactly um and it and it was more about again it was more about it just kind of felt like we were doing the same movie which which you know to your point cam it's it's like what where's that line between like just redoing the first movie or you know making it making it feel like its own thing while also staying true to the original i think a lot of people are trying to figure that out right now with like reboots and remakes and scream scream six that's just called scream and then when i when i look it up on itunes like i don't know which movie i'm trying to like push play on anymore uh, -huh. uh but yeah so like uh, other versions of it for sure we like i said we went through like five or six different kind of introductions that none of them ever felt right um and it was more about like what what was Xander up to at this moment in time and what had he been doing for the last 15 years? And the to me, the thing that unlocked it was we see him up on a we see him up on a on a satellite dish and he's like doing something, he's stealing something. But oh no, he's just he's just making it so that some people can watch a soccer game. Like to me, that was the thing that unlocked it as opposed to, I think we had a couple openings where he was, he was doing spy stuff aside from somebody else. And that to me just didn't seem true to the character. Like I, I think that if he faked his death, he's just disappearing and he's going to put a middle finger up to everybody in the world. Um, so I, we went, we went through a lot of different iterations of his introduction. Um, Sam, Samuel Jackson being in the movie quite a bit, we went pretty far down that road. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of set pieces that uh, we had to cut. Uh, and I say this now watching this movie going like, Jesus, that was some crazy set piece. Like we had some bigger, crazier set pieces uh, that just got cut for time and budget. Uh, so for example, uh, the woman that he goes and meets in London, uh, her name is, the character's name is Ainsley, uh, mm -hmm. to get information on on Zhang. Uh, her introduction was her crew originally running a, along the top of a construction crane and then diving off the construction crane into the rooftop pool, which is how they were like breaking into the pool, basically. And so that was a big stunt. We originally had Zhang being introduced cliff diving uh which we we got to the Dominican Republic to film and there was no cliff uh for him to dive <laughs> off of uh I don't know if you guys have seen it there's a there's a great uh Chris Hemsworth movie on Netflix called Extraction 
Yeah. Where his character introduction is he dives off a cliff and then he kind of like settles and sets at the bottom of the, and, and that was like, I saw that and I was like, damn, I wish, I wish we'd had a cliff in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> um, let's see what else we had at one point in the third act, we had a, uh, a fight scene inside of like a tenement building where there were a, where, where there were clotheslines uh running through the interior of the tenement building like an atrium in the center mm -hmm. uh and so like they were like climbing the, the the laundry wires and then fighting each other on the laundry wires like you know 40 or 50 feet above the above the ground uh i think honestly the story pretty much has stayed the same um the, i think it was just like a lot of set pieces that were cut for time and budget and not having cliffs uh were really the stuff that kind of that that's the alternate version of the movie that nobody saw well like tony collette becomes the antagonist of the movie ultimately kind of the mastermind who was going to be filling that sort of role if samuel jackson sticks around we originally had it that Zhang that Zhang was like triple agent um and I think we got to the point where everybody just kind of fell in love with his character and we didn't want to do that. Right. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Well, that, that probably leads me on to, and this is something we've discovered in the past when talking to screenwriters, where sometimes you're involved, sometimes you're not, but casting. You've got a terrific cast here, Ruby Rose, Donnie Yen, as we've mentioned. Yeah. Were you involved with that? Or were those names already on there on the page as people who you could use when you were writing it? How where were you involved in that process at all? Who did who did we have? We had well, we had Vin, obviously, Samuel mm -hmm. L. Jackson. Um uh yeah, a lot uh Jeff Kirschenbaum like had his board up in his office of like the people that he wanted in the movie. And Ruby Rose was on that board from day one. Uh, Deepika Patacone was on that board from day one. Uh, Donnie Yen was not, uh, although I will say that we, I mean, like here, here's the, here's the version of the movie that we didn't get. Uh, it was supposed to be Jet Li, uh, oh. until about, I want to say three days before we started filming. Wow. Uh, something happened. Jet Li dropped out we thought that the movie was going to not we, like the, the line producer was scrambling to completely redo the schedule. Uh, we thought the movie was going to have to shut down or pause or something. And then out of the ether came Donnie Yen. And this was before, uh, this was before uh, Rogue One had come out. Rogue One was still a year away. We knew that he was in it and we knew that he had filmed it, but it hadn't come out yet. Um, and I think that I had seen Ip Man five years before that. I think that that's, uh, and it was just like, oh my God, like, uh, like I, I wanted to make a movie with, with, with Jet Li so badly. And I was so bummed when that didn't work out. And I like, but Donnie was just like, he, he was next level. Like I was, he was, he was amazing. Um, so, uh, you know, a little bit of the cast was, was, uh, you know, the the dream board and some of it like rory mccann uh kind of just came in through auditions we interrupt this program to bring you a special report agents pardon the interruption but we have some top secret intel that's right independent podcasting is not cheap equipment hosting research 
we don't have Townsend Agency resources. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky mushrooms. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening experience up to Q-Branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com slash spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now, Cam, on with the spy jinx. And were you writing on the film through production? Was there like regular rewriting or what was the scenario there? Yeah, so uh, Vin's process is very kind of like on the move. Uh, and I was on set pretty much every day for the entire shoot of the movie, uh, you know, with Vin and DJ and Kirsch every morning of the shoot, you know, going over every scene and, and all the lines and everything. So yeah, I was... I was actively involved. And again, uh, uh, some of it was creative and some of it was, there's no cliff. There's no cliff in the Dominican <laughs> Republic. We need a new scene to introduce our guy. Right. And you have a lot of moving parts here in terms of characters, because there's obviously a spy plot, which we can talk about in a minute, but like in terms of juggling all of these characters, because Dan, uh, Donnie Yen's side, as well as Xander's side, yeah. That's a lot. And how did you go about just balancing everything while also making a film that you would call Triple X based around Xander Cage? Yeah, I think that it was really about like finding like who those people were that he would be friends with. Uh, I think that that was one of the things that was exciting to me and I know was exciting to Vin was this idea of like in the first Triple X movie, you see some of his friends at the beginning, they're partying and then and then Samuel L. Jackson shows up and he's arrested and he's kind of pulled out of his element and thrust into another element that he doesn't belong. And we kind of went about this in the, in the opposite direction of bringing his whole element along and kind of disrupting the spy movie with, with his buddies. Uh, so that, that was the goal. Uh, and I think that, you know, to the, to the actors, you know, uh, they were all just so specific and unique that I, it, it wasn't that hard to, to manage them. And everybody was just, you know, they all did such great jobs that I think, you know, you have that, you have that shot of them at the end of the movie where it pans over and they're at the funeral. And it's just every single one of them, you go like, there's nobody like it, it's, it's Ocean's Eleven, right? There's nobody that's mm -hmm. kind of getting lost in the, in the crowd. And was Ocean's Eleven always sort of the model? Because I think a lot of fans, including myself at the time when they saw it, thought, okay, I wonder if this is some influence from Fast and Furious, which has the whole family aspect and obviously yeah. Vin Diesel as a producer. Yeah, um, there was definitely, it, you know, there was some Fast influence. Uh, Jeff Kirschenbaum worked on, works on the Fast movies as well, uh, with along with Vin. Um, but I mean, like Ocean's Eleven is, you know, top five of my movies of all time that uh, I love. So like anytime I write anything that's like more than four characters in a scene, like I think I, I, I think of Ocean's Eleven. I, I think I'm going to touch on stunt work in a minute, but I know Cam wants to talk about the, the spy story and we probably should because we talk about spy films every week. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea is there is this box that can control satellites and bring them down to work like weapons of mass destruction. And it's like a who's who trying to get it, switcheroo, bad guys, face removals, kind of Mission Impossible style. 
what spy films were you using as like a touchstone when crafting the spy story for this? I mean, Mission, Impo Mission Impossible for sure. Um, I think that those movies, especially like uh, Ghost Protocol uh, and, uh, you know, I, I those, those movies to me work on just kind of like this, this engine of just like keep going. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what makes those movies fun is that the movies, they never give you a chance to, to think to yourself, what's going on? Uh, you just kind of, you just kind of get, you, you get take, you get taken along. So that was definitely a goal of like, we have all these characters, we have these great set pieces, you know, these great character moments. Uh, let's not worry as much. Uh, and this is a horrible thing for a screenwriter to say, but like, let's not worry about the plot as much. Like I don't, when I go and watch a triple X movie or a mission impossible movie, like I, I don't care that much about how those movements happen or why they're happening. Like, I just want them to happen. Um, and so I, I think to me, like, that was the thing is just trying to find that like engine that, that doesn't, that doesn't stop and keeps going forward. Um, well, yeah. Well, you, when you watch mission impossible, you don't worry too much about Ethan hunt and it's yeah. like personal life. You're just like, Hey, how is he going to get to that bomb and defuse it in time? This is going to be really interesting. And then you get a really cool sequence and that's just yeah. how those things work. One of the things I love about the Mission Impossible movies uh, is that they start with an assumption of facts that would normally be an entire other movie's plot, where they where they just start the movie and they're like, "There's a bad guy. He has a bomb. He's going to go do it on this day with these people, and here's how we stop him." And and they do that within like the first five minutes of the movie. And every other movie would spend 45 minutes giving you all of that information and helping you figure out all that information. And they're just like, no, here's the information. Now we can go have fun. Um, and so I, I, I always think about that and, and you know, uh, for better or worse, try to try to live up to that kind of, I don't know, uh, speed, I guess. And does a character sort of as outlandish as uh, Xander Cage sort of give you a little bit of an extra license to go kind of crazier with a plot like this, where an audience maybe would react more negatively to a complicated plot like this, if it was something that was more honed, you know, in a world of kind of being down to earth. Whereas yeah. with triple X, not so much the case. Yeah. I, I think that Xander helps a lot. And I think the expectations of the franchise help a lot. Um, I would not write, if, you know, if I was ever given the opportunity, I would not write a James Bond movie about a magic box that lets satellites fall out of the sky. I just don't, those two things aren't compatible. Um, but I think, like you said, Xander kind of gives you a little bit of leeway to just have fun with that. Um, and at the end of the day, everything in spy movies is a MacGuffin and you either are spending a lot of time explaining the MacGuffin um or worrying about the MacGuffin or trying to make the MacGuffin have some sort of logical sense within the world and i think that those are very specific movies and and some movies that do that can be very very good but i think that there's other kinds of movies where you just want to move past that as quickly as possible mm -hmm. so i think it is it, it is really just about the, the the type of movie that you're making and, and like i said like a lot of the stuff that I that I would write for a triple X movie is not stuff that I would write in another movie. Um, and I think you just have to kind of be cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's jump over to the stunts. One of the things I really liked about the first one was a bit disappointed with the second one was the stunt work. And I, and I really liked the stunt work in the third one because there was a use of practical stunt work. Yeah. Um, was that a choice that was made very early on that you were a part of, that there would be less of the blue screen work and a lot more of practical stuff on set? Um, I think, you know, honestly, that was just DJ. That was like, I, I wrote some crazy shit and DJ figured out how to shoot it. Honestly, like it wasn't really, uh, uh, a decision. I think that everybody knew that like we wanted, we wanted to be able to, you know, especially things like the snow skiing, like you, you just kind of want to see that, like, if it's possible, mm -hmm. why not do it? And there, you know, it's, there are people that are doing it, so let's do it. Um, yeah. Now, which was the coolest stunt to see actually being shot that maybe you were on set for? Gosh, um, I'm trying to think. the the street The street fight on, in the under the overpass uh, was was actually pretty cool. Uh, there weren't as like a lot, not a lot, but. I'd say about half the cars are digitally inserted, but there were, you know, actual cars there. And, you know, it's all, it's all long lenses and kind of trickery to make it seem like the cars are going faster, but, but it was still like dangerous and fun and, and exciting. And uh, yeah, I, that one, the fist fight in, in traffic was, was probably my favorite. We're still lamenting the shark here. I can tell. <laughs> you know what? I've got a shark question, actually. Um, I'm a big fan of Jaws and the whole scene where, um Vin's character is comparing tattoos with the female lead um yes. was that a reference to the scar scene in jaws yes 100 percent. boom <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm glad i'm glad scott you finally get someone to recognize that homage and i'm glad cam was right in in picking it out yeah that's, uh, yeah that's a nice that's a nice little moment there yeah uh yeah i mean look you know triple x is not I think I think going into it, I think we all knew what kind of movie we wanted to make. And I think that that's what allowed us to kind of, if if we got to the line, maybe we crossed it a couple of times with things that were, you know, more silly than fun. But I think that like the, the, the creative team and everybody that was working towards this movie kind of knew what movie we were making. And I, I think that that was, yeah. So, you know, do a little Jaws homage, why not? I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. talking to the guy with the Jaws poster on his wall. It makes perfect yeah. sense. Um, I One thing I was genuinely curious about, because I watched this blind. I never saw this in the, in the theaters. I watched this as to part for this review, basically. Yeah. And I didn't look at IMDb. So I was stunned towards the end of the third act when Darius Stone, Ice Cube <laughs> himself, turned up. At what point was it decided that uh, we were going to have a, a, an Ice Cube Darius Stone return? Okay, so I will take 1,000% credit for that. <laughs> uh, I wrote the third act over a weekend. It was kind of one of those things where it was like we, we, we broke camp on Friday. I came home Saturday and Sunday, wrote the third act uh, and came back on Monday. And at that point, in as we were as we were chatting about it there were question marks about like how are we going to get them out of this situation kind of a thing but nobody had an answer uh and that weekend i was just like fuck it i'm writing an ice cube uh and i wrote an ice cube and i took it back on monday and everybody was like we can't do this you can't write an ice cube 
and then and then Joe Roth called Ice Cube and was like, "We we just uh, do you want to do this?" And he said yes. So it stayed. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. Now you got Darius Stone with a, a grenade launcher. That's, uh, yeah, that's exactly. all I could have asked for out of that film. That's that's yeah. great. Um, well, did you have a backup plan if you couldn't ah. use Ice Cube? We were, I, I was so far, we were so far away from, <laughs> from shooting at that point. That was probably October. So we, we, we weren't shooting for seven weeks. So I, I would have been able to have something. I, I don't know. Right. I also, I also desperately tried to get uh, uh, Scott, the second lead in triple X two into the movie, but we couldn't, we couldn't make it happen. Um, Scott, I can't oh, remember. Speedman. Yeah. Scott Speedman. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what he, why not? How would he have worked into this hypothetical? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I think he was just going to be, I think he was going to be one of Tony Collette's underlings. Okay. Yeah. Would he have been a villain or would he have turned out to be? I don't know if we even good? got, I don't know if we even got that far as we were, as we were figuring it out. I think it was just like, he was going to be one of the, one of the secondary agent characters. Right. Now, as I've touched on, like, there's a big ensemble in this film. Who was the most fun character to write for? Like, who was the one that you always enjoyed coming up with lines for? You know, it's got to be Rory McCann. Uh, played played a guy named Tennyson, uh, who was just like, I don't know, for whatever reason, like the 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 crazy the the pitch for his character was like the crazy version of Xander, like uh, to us, to me, like Xander, like he jumps off of a bridge and he doesn't think about how he's going to, you know, survive. I think to me, Rory McCann's character was interesting because he jumps off a bridge and he doesn't, and he doesn't care if he's going to survive. Um, and so like, what does, what does a, you know, a, a Xander character look like taken to the complete, nth degree um and so i just i I found that funny and we kind of found his voice as this you know guy that as he's as he's in a high-speed car chase is you know talking about the oil companies rigging uh red lights uh so that we buy more gasoline like uh, like to me that was just i I always got a kick out of his lines and he he brought so much to the character that yeah now you know looking back on it in, as we've reviewed it now, we we both enjoyed the film. Looking back on it yourself, what is a moment in this in the film that you're really proud of? Something that you created? Gosh, um, I kind of do love all of the uh, the kind of mid movie character introductions as we're introduced to all of his team. Um, I, like again, Rory McCann's is. Uh, he he's going to steal some money from an ATM. So he rams a car into it, which is not like, I, I, I watch, I, I still laugh at that scene. I think, uh, funny aside with that scene, it was our very first day of shooting. We shot in Toronto. Uh, we were in a parking lot. Uh, it, we had to wait for, you know, the sun to go down cause it was a night scene. Uh, we had built a gimmicked ATM in the middle of this parking lot with like a fake vestibule around it and stuff with explosives inside of it as the car mm-hmm. drives into it. Uh, and we're all waiting around, like shooting the shit, waiting for the sun to go down. And we look over and there's two guys have come up off the street. Somehow 
past multiple layers of security and are trying to withdraw cash from this explosive ATM. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, that's that's an aside. Uh, did they at yeah. least get like walk-on parts for doing that? No, did you give them like not. a background? They were, they, oh. were escorted, they were escorted <laughs> away from the explosive ATM immediately. <laughs> Um, but then like Ruby Rose's introduction where, you know, uh, I am really proud of that. I think that that's one of those like scenes that's like, um, uh, it's just kind of one of those perfect scenes where like it opens and you think that she's hunting the lion, but then you realize that she's hunting the poachers. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just dig all of those character introductions for whatever, for whatever that's worth. Were the infographics your idea, or where did those come from? No, those those showed up one day in editing. I walked I walked in to watch a, a version of the movie, and those showed up. And uh, I think I think I may have written some of the copy that ended up in them, but the idea was just I think either the editor or somebody on the editing team put them in. Interesting. They had the kind of um, a video game vibe to them. Yeah, I think we even, I think there's a Call of Duty reference in one of them. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, I think one has like the the username in Call of Duty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, yeah, her username. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm not sharing mine because I'll just get, I'll get, <laughs> I'll, I'll get destroyed. But I always do anyway, so that's fine. Yeah. Oh, you um, know what else? I, you know what else I'm proud of? I'm also very proud of the, I, I really dig the relationship between uh, Ruby Rose and Deepika. Uh, I thought that they, you know, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, it, it's hard for me to pinpoint other movies in this space where, where a relationship like that happens and it's, you know, organic and they start out as not liking each other and then they still don't really like each other, but they're, you know, helping each other at the end. And I, I don't know, whatever, for whatever reason, I really dig that. When you're introducing all of these characters, is there discussions at all about, in potentially a sequel, we would continue on with some of these characters? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we talked about a sequel uh, almost immediately. Uh, and, you know, the, the box office didn't turn out, so that the plans for that got scrapped. But yeah, we, we definitely had that in mind as we were building this one. Right. Well, I... That actually probably leads me quite beautifully to a question we received from Rich Wilkes to yeah. you. So from okay. the writer of one to the writer of three, which I just quite, I just think this is a very nice, nice thing. Um, he wants to know, what would you do with Triple X4? Well, uh, I, I, I wrote it. It's, uh, it's sitting, it's sitting in a drawer somewhere. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever get made. Uh, the pitch was, uh, basically triple X versus the world. Uh, and it was, it was their team gets, uh, basically called out or, or like blasted out on the internet as like, you know, uh, not necessarily terrorists, but like, Hey, these are bad guys and a huge bounty is put on their heads. And it's literally every, you know, mercenary, you know, private mercenary team and military, uh, you know, forces coming after them to try and claim the bounty right so sort of like the triple x version of i guess what john wick 3 did i guess later down the road yeah 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 oh interesting that would yeah. be very cool to see but, I, I i wouldn't lose hope i mean you look at how two did yeah. and we still got a three yep never lose hope. yeah we uh uh three triple x three did we were 
we did a great in China. Like, I think we were the number one movie in China that year. Uh, don't go back and look. That's probably wrong. But we did very well in China. Uh, and yeah, I, I know that uh, it does well on streaming. So who knows? Well, I suppose the last question I have in terms of X myself is we've got what some of your highlights from, from creating it. What's a lesson you took from it in terms of personally or in terms of screenwriting, something you've taken with you further in your work? Uh, yeah, I mean, like the thing that I, that the thing that's, that's hard, I think for people who aren't in the business to kind of, I, I guess, see or understand is every move, like a movie getting made is like a, an absolute miracle. It's like mm -hmm. a thousand things have to go right. And then a thousand more things have to go even more right for a movie to even get filmed, like for a movie to get filmed and edited and made into something that's entertaining. And then also put out into the world so that lots of people can like, it's all just a fucking miracle. I've had, I've had two movies now, uh, other movies where one of them, we were uh, five days away from shooting and the lead actor said, I, I, I got to go do something. I can't be in the, and the whole movie just fucking just blew up. Um, it, it's just, so, so that's kind of the, uh, I don't know, like it, it's triple X. It's not, you know, it, it wasn't going to win any awards and, you know, uh, I, will I be remembered for it 10 years from now or 20 years from now? I, I have no idea. Will people still be having podcasts about it? Who knows? Um, but like just that experience and like being able to live in that experience and, and watch that movie get made was just phenomenal. And uh, I think from the experience, you know, from that movie, I, I took that like, you know, both in career and in life, I think you, you have to be able to recognize when the cool shit's happening and to actually like stop and, and uh, be grateful for it. So I think that that's honestly what I took away from it. I think that's a, a perfect way of encapsulating that that experience you had. And I think I think you did a fine job. I we review, as I say, spy films every week, and I thoroughly enjoyed watching this film. Thank so, you. Thank you. It has my tip of it. I, I can't wait to see it in the box office when it came out. So you had him yeah. on there as well. So there you go. Yeah, we we had the uh distinction and I, I don't know. The who who knows what. And I'm not making uh I'm not, you know, making any excuses. Uh, but we had the distinction of being released on the and Trump's inauguration day. So I think complete politics aside, I just don't think people were seeing movies that day. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I do remember going into it and like, I don't know if there was a lot of optimism because of coming off so many years since the first and the second one was really disappointing. Yeah, it was like, well, I don't know, like, is this going to be worth it? And I remember going and being genuinely surprised by how inventive some of the action was, how much fun it was, and just like the lightness of it. Like it, yeah. genuinely, it genuinely had energy. It didn't feel like a kind of like, well, let's just crank out another one. Like it I genuinely guess we're making felt, a movie. Yeah, it yeah. genuinely felt a little bit inspired. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was definitely the goal. Like I said, I think, you know, uh, DJ and Vin and, and Kirsch and I kind of all knew the movie that that we were making. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes it's, it's just okay to be entertaining. Well, you know what you're working towards. That's, yeah, that's exactly. the best way to be, you know, who you yeah. are. Um, well, Cam, did you have anything post triple X you want to talk about? 
well, I was just curious what you're working on right now. I know you were adapting the novel The Good Spy. Is that still yep. something that's going on? Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, we recently have brought a director on board, a guy named Hani uh, Abu Assad, who directed The Mountain Between Us with uh, Kate Winslet and Idris Elba a couple years ago. Yep. Um, and yeah, uh, I think next we're, we're going to be going to cast and trying to put the movie together. He's very excited about making the movie this year. So fingers and crossed. What, and what drew you to that book? Uh, I was introduced to the book by the producer, a guy named Evan Hayes, uh, who, who found the book when it first came out and optioned it. Uh, and I just had a general meeting with him and he, and we were talking about stuff and I had, I, it was probably a year after I had written Berliner, uh, and he had read that and he was like, I think you'll like this book. Uh, and I loved it. I, I don't know. It's just, I, I don't know if you guys know anything about it. It's the story of, it's the real life story of a guy named Robert Ames who was uh, an officer in the CIA. Uh, and in the 60s and 70s, when everybody was worried about Russia, he was literally, like, literally the one guy in the CIA who was like, we should probably be paying attention to the Middle East because this is going to turn into a shit show very quickly. Um, I think at, at one point in time, he was one of four people in the entire CIA that spoke Arabic, like it, it, and he was just so forward thinking and so ahead of his time. And he ended up becoming really good friends and confidants uh, with a guy uh, named Ali Hassan uh, Salome, who was Yasser Arafat's like basically number two in the PLO. Um, and the two, these two guys were, you know, trying to stop the violence and just, you know, not succeeding. Uh, uh, and so it's just a, a, it's a really incredible story about these two guys that kind of saw the way that our future was unfolding and, and tried to stop it. I'm really interested. To, I hope that one does turn out because I'd really like to see it. And I would love to know just from you as a writer, adaptation versus, you know, original screenplays, because obviously this is based on a book. Was the yeah. process, did it feel very different? Uh, no, I'd say I'm probably, I'm probably about 50, 50 at this point, honestly, between original stuff, uh, and adaptations, whether it's a book or a video game, um, or like triple X as like mm -hmm. a, a, a reboot kind of a thing. To me, the process is just always the same. It's, it's, uh, writing script pages <laughs> and not getting bogged <laughs> down in, in bullshit, I guess. Cool. Yeah. And in terms of other work you've got going on, I, I noted down that you're working on Gears of War. Uh, yeah, I worked on that a uh, couple couple years ago. Uh, I turned my draft in a while ago. Everybody was super happy with it, uh, and they're putting it together. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, as a guy who played the, the first three games, at least anyway, it's nice to see. It's also interesting for you because you used to work in video games. It's kind of a nice complete circle there. Yeah, I, I've definitely, I, what, how many video games have I done at this point? I did Gears. Uh, I, did a, I did an adaptation uh, of a smaller series called Metro 2033, uh, which is another first-person shooter. Yeah. Uh, I did Asteroids. Uh, I, I, uh, that was basically just, had nothing to do with the video game. It was just the title. But mm -hmm. uh, So, yeah, I've, I've done a number of video games at this point. <laughs> Well, what we do at the end of the show 
as we're wrapping up is we need to test out your spy credentials because this is what we talk about here. Sure. So a couple of quick fire questions for you. Question okay. one, favorite spy film of all time? Oh God. Um, you can't answer triple X three. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, I don't know. Probably the spy who came in from the cold. Uh, Tinker Taylor, I mean, is like, I don't know. There's like different, there's different, like I was saying, like there's the, there's the, the La Carrée ones, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like that's like a different tier than like Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol to me. Um, so I'll, I'll go, I'll go Spy Who Came In From The Cold, uh, but right alongside uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Like if, if it's, it's really, if I want to be entertained or if I want to be depressed, I guess those are the two movies to pick. <laughs> uh, with, an, uh, with a shout out to uh, uh, Breach, uh, yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with Chris Cooper and Ryan, it's Ryan Felipe, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, very slow, very dry. And if you don't care about spies, you will not care about that movie at all. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I do. And I, it, it tickles me. You are the first guest to actually mention either Breach or Ghost Protocol. So that's awesome. Okay. Well, there you go. Good. Mm hmm um, well, usually when we have someone on the show, by this point, they have at least referenced one James Bond film. Okay. And so my, my next question is, you know, what is your favorite James Bond film? But you haven't mentioned one yet. So I, I'm, I'm almost scared to ask. So James Bond is definitely, I grew up on James Bond. My mom uh, is, the, is like the biggest James Bond fan. Um, although when I was a kid, it was only Sean Connery. We were, I, I, I didn't even know that uh, the Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton movies existed until I was like 15 or 16. Like it was, we had the VHSs of the Sean Connery movies and those are the ones that I watched. Uh, God, I don't know. I mean, I, I've probably seen Goldfinger more times than I can possibly count. Um, uh, but probably Skyfall. I think if you, I was going to put any movie on, it was going to, it'd be Skyfall. It's a, it's a terrific Bond film. It's a great choice. Would you choose Mission Impossible over James Bond? Yeah, probably. I think I, I don't know. I like the, I like the new Mission Impossible more than like I think the first two. Mm -hmm. The, the, the first one was. It, I wasn't a fan of the TV show, so it didn't like, I didn't grow up with the TV show. So the first Mission Impossible didn't really mean anything to me. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is just like, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I, I went back and rewatched them all like a year and a half ago. And I think that I got about 10 minutes into number two and I just stopped and couldn't do it. Uh, but like three, Mission Impossible three, Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and then uh, the newest one. Uh, oh, wow. Fallout, yeah. I mean, I those are those are four genuinely great movies. Uh, and then there's a lot of Bond that I would not care to watch a second time. So I don't know. Yeah, I, it, that's tough. That's tough. Okay, well, I'd, I'll, I'd probably I'll, go. I'd probably go Mission Impossible. Wow. Okay. This is this is a controversial one, but I like it. I like that you're a man of your man of conviction. You're sticking to yeah. Mission Impossible. I like that. But like. Um, like never say never again. I don't want to watch that. I don't want to I'm watch that you. ever. I don't want to watch that ever again. Uh, I, I still think it's better than Thunderball. I, 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 I just do. Full of it. Yeah. 
No way. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think we had Thunderball on the TV like every other week at my house. Like, I think my mom loves that movie. So I, I don't know. Like, that might just be one that I, I can't even tell anymore. Uh, but I don't know. There's just some. There, like, I don't care about the Timothy Dalton Bond movies. A lot of the Pierce Brosnan ones are very suspect. Mm, yeah. I can see that. Anyway, yeah. But, all right, okay. By day job, you're a screenwriter, though. The last question I'm going to leave you with. Say you got the call. Barbara Broccoli calls you up tomorrow. She wants you to come in and help them shape the next Bond and the future of Bond. What would you do with the franchise now? Oh, Jesus. Um, These are the big questions. These are the big questions. I don't know. I They kind of... the the. You could talk spoilers here. It's fine. Yeah, no. I uh, I almost think that you make it... I, I think you got to make it like the world of James Bond, right? Like they've done pretty much everything at this point. They did his origin story. They did his death story. Uh, they did crazy shit and they did really grounded shit. Like I, I almost think that you need to like completely recontextualize what it means to be James Bond. Like and what even James Bond looks like. I think there was that, there was that whole uh, theory going around the internet a couple of years ago that was like, you know, all the, all the James Bonds are connected and it's just that when one dies, they just give them, they give the next one, the number. Mm. Uh, I almost think that you could kind of ex- go explore that and figure out what that means. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like the the Lothario guy that just goes and wantonly kills people and sleeps with lots of women. I, I just don't know if that kind of concept works anymore. <laughs> Honestly. I don't I think, think that's particularly that's, controversial. That's, that's yeah, the man. tough that's the tough thing about Bond is like what does it mean to be Bond in twenty twenty two? And I, I don't know if there's a if there's an answer that actually uh would people would like that's the thing you you could just sit in that that as as you say lothario going around shagging the ladies but it there's no growth there you'd be pleasing a lot of older fans but i don't think you'd be growing you wouldn't be yeah i i i remember vividly a conversation that i i had with the producer right around the time that american sniper came out where we were talking about it it was like it was the number one movie at the box office and we were just chatting about it and i was like yeah, you know, I, I think that there was a much more interesting movie to be made there if you had actually, like, gone into this guy's lies. Because, like, a lot of his book was was shown to be just complete lies. Mm-hmm. And they still based the movie off of those lies. And so I, I was, you know, just rambling on and, like, saying, like, I, I would have been more interested in this movie if it had been, like, here is lies, this is what he was seeing, but this is the reality of what was actually going on. Um and the producer looked at me and he was like, Scott, you would have ruined the movie. So <laughs> I almost think like trying to find a way to make James Bond relevant, you're going to ruin James Bond. So maybe, maybe you don't, I don't know, maybe you don't make him relevant. Maybe you make it retro, send him back to the seventies or the sixties or something and just lean into that. That, w- that was, that was my pitch for it. Not that anyone's listening to me, but yeah. it, it solves that whole problem of how do you have Bond in 2022? But so yeah. At least my brainwaves is on the same as a Hollywood screenwriter, so I can, <laughs> I, I, I can take solace in that, at least. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, Scott, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us this evening, this morning, all about Triple X3. We've had a blast talking about it this week, and I'm glad we got to revisit it with you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This has been great. Haven't really thought or seen the movie in a couple of years, so it was uh, it was fun to kind of go back. We mentioned it earlier, but is there anything else you're working on at the moment you'd like to talk about? Uh, you know, there's there's always lots of stuff. I am very excited about Good Spy. Uh, I think that that one is 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 a really special movie and a special story, and uh, as far away from triple X as you could possibly get. Uh, I don't even think we have any action scenes in the movie. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that that's what I'm most excited about right now. Uh, it looks like I might be uh, sneaking back into your email inbox uh, yeah. in a year or so's time, just talking for another another interview there. So uh, for watch sure, this space definitely. Well, Scott, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Well. Thank you all for listening. Again, we want to thank uh, Scott Frazier for joining us and potentially our final time in the Xander Zone. And boy, what a rush it was. You never know, Scott. He did write a fourth one. Fingers crossed. It's it's sitting in a hard drive somewhere, but uh, I'm too busy thinking about Xander Cage punching a shark. I don't know about you. I mean, who isn't? And I mean, I would love to see that visual because I think it would have been really awesome I just hope that had they done it, it would have been like a practical shark that he's punching in the face versus like a CG one. Because sometimes those CG sharks can look a little wacky. They can, and you are the shark expert around here. We should probably come up with a name for you in that regards. I mean, you are currently wearing a Jaws t-shirt and sitting in front of a Jaws poster. That is actually true. And I was very excited to hear that, uh, you know, Scott worked a Jaws reference into Triple X you know, the return of Xander Cage. That was very exciting to learn. You may be the first person to point that out in cinema history, and you should probably put it on the IMDb trivia page. I will get right on that as soon as this recording is done. <laughs> the problem is, I know you will. But uh, <laughs> let's just talk a little bit about the chat. We learned a lot about Xander Cage, a lot of stuff that's probably not out there in the public domain. So I'm glad that we had the chance to speak to Scott. It's always been nice to speak to another Scott because, frankly, we're all great. Um, but the first thing that jumped out to mind is the alternate film where Samuel Jackson's character of Augustus Gibbons didn't, I, I say die in air quotes, but he dies. But he's actually the main guy throughout the film. Yeah, Samuel Jackson is really good at doing that, huh? If you also look at uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, where he also disappears for a period of time. So, um, yeah, that was really interesting to learn because Tony Collette, when I watched the movie is such a specific part of the movie. Like, that is, you know, I think a really strong mastermind villain who brings a lot to the movie, gives it, you know, kind of a jolt of new energy just having her performance there. And then to learn that it was kind of something that happened along the, you know, development phase versus what was originally intended is really interesting. I mean, I'll never forgive that horrible uh, insertion of Tony Collette's in that scene in the uh, plane. That was maybe one of the worst uses of blue screen I think I've ever seen. But... She was fun. I would say green screen. Probably green screen. <laughs> I, do, I actually don't know the difference. I, I don't know what blue or green does. I'm sure you do, but uh, that's why I'm an idiot. But yeah, I, I, I'm I almost glad we got what we got with Samuel Jackson. Almost like less is more, because that starting scene is great. Uh, that's, that's Samuel Jackson giving a knockout performance and then just leaving for mostly the rest of the film. Samuel Jackson is like the best punctuation actor around. He can show up for like a couple minutes 
just bring everything to life, then vanish. And the audience never forgets about him. So that when he shows up at the end, the audience isn't like, who, who is this guy again? Like, they immediately know who he is. Well, speaking of who is this guy again, another thing we learnt is about Ice Cube's mysterious cameo appearance. You know, I was very shocked, as you learnt in the review this week, that he appeared in this film. I thought Darius Stone was, uh, you know, had defrosted by this point. Uh, I don't know why I say defrosted. He's Ice Cube as a real person, not Darius Stone. But <laughs> hey-ho. I don't know. He got I like it. I a... like it. Yeah, sure. He, he defrosted. Um, but, yeah, how that was just... Uh, that was Scott brainstorming on a weekend. He thought, hey, I'll take a punt. I'll write it down. And then took the script in on Monday. And they're like, hey, we could probably do this. They call up Ice Cube and lo and behold, he was free. Yeah, that was a fun surprise to find out because... When, you know, I saw Ice Cube in the theater on that uh, in that movie and I was blown away. I never expected to see someone brought over from State of the Union just because that movie really, really underperformed. It was not particularly well liked. But to learn that it came from Scott was really, really cool to find out because it's the sort of thing you often wonder, well, a producer thought this was a good idea or someone kind of forced this into it versus the writer organically coming up with the idea, pitching it and making it happen. Yeah, and I think it actually serves a, a, a good function in the film. I think having that wrap-up at the end as well, where the X's come together is quite cool. And just seeing you know Darius Stone and, and Xander Cage having a nice chat on the top of Xander Cage's car from the first film, it's just a nice touch for people who actually care about this universe. And there are fans of the Triple X universe. I count myself one of them. Definitely. And I mean, I'm always kind of a fan of when you can redeem something that people didn't like or it didn't work necessarily the first time. Darius Stone, like, I don't really have anything um, against the character. I thought Ice Cube is someone who's a good actor. It's just that the movie around him was not very good. It didn't support what he does best. And I always think it's fun when they can find a way to kind of revisit that but kind of capture why it should work. Because I think in this movie... Ice Cube just feels like he fits the movie better than he did in the original, you know, in Triple X State of the Union. Yeah, and it's something like uh, Marvel does quite well. They they know when they've done some stinkers and they've sort of revisited it. You think of the What If series on on Disney Plus, um, Thor: The Dark World's involvement in Endgame, just a little scene, but it's just sort of a nice touch to an otherwise bad film, just to give it a little bit of love, you know. Or also um, Electro and the Lizard in Spider Man No Way Home. Oh, yeah, yep. Very good shout out as well. And, uh, you know, this is recorded on the day of the trailer for the Multiverse of Madness. So there is some other stuff in there, I'm sure, that will get redeemed. I've heard about a lot of mysterious cameos popping up in that film. So that, uh, yeah, that, that should be an interesting film. But, you know, on the whole, I did have a question for you, Cam. As we're, this is probably the last time I think we're ever going to talk about Triple X, apart from specials down the line or anything like that. Yeah, you never really know when they might try to reboot it. Like, I don't think you're going to see a Vin Diesel triple X movie, but you never know when someone at a studio might say, you know what, let's try someone else as triple X and kind of reboot the entire thing. Who knows, right? Well, it definitely could work. Even if you just get Samuel Jackson back uh, as the Augustus Gibbons role and he is creating his own team of triple X's and he gets a young recruit in. It could be someone, you know, on the edge of, you know, kind of cool becoming a star like Vin was at the time in 2002. So I, I think that that could work. It's an easy formula. And it ultimately, you know, look at the box office for No Time to Die. It proves that these type of spy films still work. And, you know, Fallout as well. I'm sure Mission Impossible 6 or so 7 and 8 will do well in a couple of years' time as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. And I mean, 
As we have seen time and time again, there is always money with the spy genre and studios will always go back to it. I hope they do because it's, uh, it's keeping us talking. That's right. Otherwise, we wouldn't talk to each other at all. No. Frankly, I hate you. I know. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. <laughs> well, speaking of spy stories, uh, one other thing I thought was quite cool was when we spoke about at the end, all of our guests get asked sort of, what's your favorite spy film? What's your favorite Bond film? Scott kind of bucked the trend. He would rather watch a Mission Impossible film than a James Bond film, which is, uh, I think we're 20 interviews in at this point, and that's the first time that's ever happened. Which is kind of surprising because I actually hear that sentiment repeated a lot. There's a lot of people I've heard out there who really do prefer the Mission Impossibles. I think more in the sort of mainstream movie going public than the, you know, kind of diehard spy fans. They tend to cite things, especially early Bond, as, you know, hugely important in the movies they really love. But I do hear Mission Impossible's name bandied about a lot. So it's about time it happened. I think almost to a point the Mission Impossible films are more accessible to non-spy fans than James Bond is now. Like back in the day, if you weren't a big spy fan, you could still go and watch The Living Daylights and get an okay experience of it because it wasn't that it wasn't based in a continuity or anything like that. But the Craig films had a specific story running through them. And they're very much at this point now people have that there's this like built in problem with the Bond films. People are like, Oh, that you know, the womanizing's a bit icky and all this sort of stuff. Whereas Mission Impossible doesn't have any of that. It's just a fun action film with the like a little hint of spy plot, really. Definitely. And also, when you look at the history of Bond, the reason people went to Bond movies for decades was they were the best of the best when it came to huge stunts on the big screen. And now that's Mission Impossible. It's Tom Cruise doing these incredible feats and wrapping it up in this very fun, energetic spy caper stuff that grabs people. When you look at like the Craig era Bonds, there's some fantastic stunt work going on in almost every single movie, if not every movie. It's just that I don't know that the general audience looks to Bond now as the go-to place for stunts. No, I'd never considered that. I think that's a very good point, Cam. It's the first time you've ever done that, so well done. Thank you. You know, you look at Goldeneye, right? Like, that opening of that stuff with the bungee was such a huge impact moment. But, like, outside of the parkour moment at the start of Casino Royale... I don't know that there's been a Craig one where people just went absolutely gaga for the stunts. Um, no, I don't, I don't think there is. I do have a question, though. What do you think is the most Mission Impossible of the Bond stunts? Um, I mean, boy, the um, jump off the cliff in uh, Spy Who Loved Me is pretty incredible. But honestly, when I think Mission Impossible, probably more things like um, the opening of Goldeneye off the bun mm. you know the bungee off the dam yeah, that's a good one um and also a lot of the stuff to do with fights falling out of planes hanging from planes uh, on top of planes you know a lot of this, when they had the skydiving team doing all those sorts of things that's the stuff i really think of now you've made me think of the uh fight on the carrier on on living daylights right at the end yeah between bond and is it necros at that point yeah that's right yeah, that's kind of when they're hanging on to the cargo. That's quite Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. Well, again, so I think that about wraps us up. Uh, again, we want to thank Scott, and he did mention he's currently working on a adaptation of The Good Spy. That he's uh, they've just got a director and they're just going to start casting it soon. So hopefully, when that's all said and done, now in cinemas, we'll get him back on the show to talk about it some more. 
Yeah, I'm really hoping to see that film because I think it would be really cool to compare that in terms of a big screen spy film coming from him. One that's very escapist kind of goofiness, like a triple X movie, compared against something more serious like The Good Spy. Well, he said it's quite a buttoned-down film. I think he said there's no action scene whatsoever. Yeah. Which to some people might be like, how does that work in a film? But there's many films that are just people talking. Yeah, I mean, you look at say Bridge of Spies, that has a few action film action scenes inserted into it. But you know, I don't think Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy has much in terms of action. Oh, definitely, yeah. And I mean, he did make the film The Numbers Station with John Cusack, which does have sort of a spy vibe, but it's more of like a confined location suspense thriller, really, more so than like kind of a sprawling espionage story, which is what The Good Spy sounds more like. Well, so yeah, I hope that uh, I hope that happens. I hope we get to see it and I uh, hope he gets to join us again on the show. But that wraps us up. That's us done with Xander Cage for now. Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, we're going to leave the thrills, spills, kills, and chills of the XXX franchise behind, and we are going to take on the 1983 Margot Kidder spy comedy Trenchcoat. You didn't think things could get any more extreme. That's right. But just wait. Just wait till Margot <laughs> Kidder puts that trench coat on. You won't know what hit you. That's right. I've never seen this movie. I believe it was like a Disney release. Uh, so... I'm sure there's going to be someone out there hearing this who's like, oh my god, I watched that movie quite a few times back in the day on TV. I mean, I've got a bad history on this show with Disney releases, so now you've said that, I am very worried. I'm looking at you, one of our dinosaurs is missing. But your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch 1983's Margot Kidder spy film Trenchcoat and join us next week. And of course, don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners you'll find me waiting for cam to dial nine <laughs>